Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so glad to be able to talk to Carrie Noble. Actually, I got a hold of you through a mutual friend of ours, Casey, from the Cult Vault Podcast. She's the one that turned me on to you. So welcome, Carrie, to Mindship Podcast. Thanks, Clint. Glad to be here. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of interesting things to talk about. Of course, your basic story, which I'm sure you'll get, we'll get into in more detail, was that you were, of course, a member of the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. I guess... Uh, Charitably, it was just a militia organization, but I'm sure we'll talk more about it. There was a, I guess you would say, a white supremacy, a racist component to it, a Christian fundamentalist piece. So can you take us through that? The CSA, are they still around today? Oh, no, no. It uh, was totally disbanded in uh, 86. Everybody had to leave the property by that point. So it's, it's no more at all. There's hardly anything left on the property at all. Right. So, yeah, the, the uh, what do you want to call it? A compound or whatever it was. So take us through who started the CSA, because I know you were quite high up in it and you've got your own sort of version of what happened in the end. But who started it and what was it sort of originally about? Jim Ellison uh, was the founder of the group. He started the group actually around 73, 74. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had come out of San Antonio, Texas, uh, from a place called School of the Ministries and wanted to start an apocalyptic group out in the middle of nowhere, preparing for the last days, Jesus coming back, that kind of stuff. He wasn't uh, predicting when, uh, but in the meantime, he was helping kids get off drugs and get out of cults, uh, ironically. Mm. Um, That was in Elijah, Missouri. So he stayed there for two or three years, then moved into Arkansas, northern Arkansas, uh, temporarily at a place called Mountain Creek Resort that had a, uh, several cabins that were used for hunting. Uh, so the owner let us live there for free, you know, in exchange for just making sure nobody broke into the property and ruined everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I moved there in 77 uh, while they were still at Mountain Creek. My wife and I, we had one child and we're expecting our second child. In early 78, Jim bought the property from Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, just right on the Arkansas-Missouri border, bought it from Campus Crusade, like I said, and uh, it was 224 acres. Uh, Once we had the property, of course, we started building houses on it. In those days, it was not racist. It was not paramilitary militia. It was just a simple apocalyptic group. Uh, all of us just wanted to raise our family in, in the country, away from the big cities, and just figure whenever Jesus came back, you know, we, we would kind of see what would happen. Uh, you'd be ready. That was, <laughs> yeah, that was fine for the first year. Uh, you know, we worked together, we fellowshiped together, we worshiped together, all, and just we all had our own individual homes. We didn't live communally. But in those days, we were known as Zarephath Horeb Community Church. CSA itself had not been 
invented yet. In the summer of 78, we were introduced to some teachings by a man named John Todd, who was supposedly had come out of a witchcraft organization, was going around the country exposing people that were involved with religion and politics and Hollywood and that kind of stuff that supposedly had witchcraft ties. And we were introduced to the to terms we were not familiar with in those days, you know, the Illuminati, the Bilderbergers, mm-hmm. the Council of 33, that kind of stuff. Oh, that conspiracy but, theory fodder, yeah. Conspiracy theories, that kind of stuff. Oh, so yeah. that, that was new for us. Uh, but one thing that John said that, you know, he started talking about refugees like us when everything collapses, you know, groups were storing up food and clothing and building homes. But he said, if you hadn't thought about this, when all the uh, everything comes down, however it's going to happen, how will you protect yourselves from all the bad guys? That are also uh, yeah. So you got to have guns. Yeah, and of course you do. Yeah, that was a new concept for us. We just sort of assumed that whenever it came down, God would protect us somehow. But it sort of made sense to us. So over the next 18 months, we spent $52,000 on guns, ammunition, military equipment, and clothing, you know, fatigues and stuff. So, that, of course, that was a lot of money back in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, since we had the guns, we had to start training. Most of us had never been around guns all that much except for some hunting, and that was it. Uh, so we started training. We got bigger and developed squads. Uh, we built an obstacle course in a four-block mock town called Silhouette City. And we practiced every scenario that we could possibly think of in any kind of weather that happened. So if it rained, snowed, you know, the heat of the summer, it didn't matter. We practiced and practiced and practiced. Eventually, we became known as the number one civilian SWAT team in the United States. Mm. And then that was in 78, uh, early 79. In the fall of 79, we got introduced to Christian identity, what was known as the two seed line from a preacher named uh, Dan Gaiman. Christian identity teaches that the Jews are not God's chosen people. In the Bible, that the white race is. Jews are a counterfeit race that started with when Eve had sex with the devil and later on that day had sex with Adam and produced twins that were known as Cain and Abel. And, of course, Cain killed Abel, and from that point on, warfare on the earth for the control of the earth uh, occurred. Mm-hmm. The Christian identity teaching is still occurring today. Is that uh, something to do with the, the lost tribes of Israel uh, allegedly fled to the British Isles? Is As that part of that? That's so, really yeah. more British Israelism, right? Uh, which was the main teaching before Christian identity. Uh, it was very popular in the 40s and 50s, uh, early 60s. But then in the 60s, Christian identity started for, really forming up and uh, getting more popular. So by the time we were introduced to it, uh, it had a pretty good stronghold in America. Uh, British Israel teaches that, uh, you know, you've got the northern kingdom with uh, 10 tribes, which is the house of Israel. You've got the two southern kingdoms, which went into the Babylonian captivity which was the house of Judah. And from that, mixing in with the Babylonian religion, the Babylonian people, when they came out of Babylon, Judaism was a mixed pagan religion at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Christian identity takes it a step further 
and says, well, if you really trace all the that seed back, then you'll discover that, you know, the whole thing about uh, Eve having sex with the devil, and regardless of whether they were known as Jews or Edomites or whatever name they were known in, as in, in a particular point in time, you know, the that seed continued and used things like were parables of Jesus, uh, specifically the wheat and the tares, that the wheat are the good seed, mm -hmm. the tares are the bad seed, and the seed is taken as literal. Is that the serpent seed doctrine? Yes. Yeah, the so right. The line of the serpent was that that line where serpent uh, Satan had sex with Eve and produced right. that race. So yeah, the white race is therefore the uncorrupted true Israel in that <laughs> sense. Right. So yeah. you... So let me get this straight. So you originally then, I'm, I'm trying to keep my head around this story. So you got into weapons, first of all, just as a way to defend what you had in case the end did come like the big collapse and all the rest of it. Then comes the Christian identity piece that's that's added into it. So what's the theology of the group by this point then? Where are they at? Well, pretty much the group had become Christian identity uh, most of our members, to be honest, could not have explained it if their life depended on it. You know, right. you know, where, where we led as a group, everybody just kind of followed along. I was the Bible teacher. So Christian Day took us about six months to sort out because uh, Jill and I had both come from church backgrounds. Uh, so that was pretty radical for us to just start off with. Guns made sense. Christian mm -hmm. identity at first really didn't. Right. Um, but as the as the Bible teacher, I had I bought the books to study, and by the time we incorporated incorporated it into our theology, it answered probably seventy to eighty percent of our questions. It didn't answer everything, but enough that we were able to adapt it. Right. So you be you're becoming essentially what becomes a white supremacist group with a Christian sort of fundamentalist background with guns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah fundamentalists. And then we were we were a charismatic group in our original days. So, you know, we believed in speaking in tongues, miracles, healings, that kind of stuff. Um, and so that made us really unique amongst the various groups in the country. How many uh, groups were there at that time that were even similar to yours? I mean, you can think of paramilitary, like the KKK. I'm not sure when they started getting into paramilitary stuff, the groups up in Northern Idaho and things like that back in the day, but how many groups in the late seventies were there like yours? Very few. And when we first adapted for guns, except for an example, uh, we were known as survivalists. That was the main term mm -hmm. back then. Being a survivalist didn't necessarily mean that you had a lot of guns. You had some guns, but you were storing up as what's known as the preppers. Right, that, doomsday preppers, yeah. So you were storing up food, ammunition, clothing, that kind of stuff, and, and living pretty much in the wilderness somewhere. Trying to get off the grid. Right, being off the grid as much as possible. Very few groups were survivalist and Christian identity. Mm -hmm. Most Christian identity groups were not paramilitary. So even when you were talking about the Klan, there's a lot of Klan groups that weren't violent, weren't... Uh, you know, other than, you know, posting flyers out in a town or something like that, you know, like the neo-Nazis sometimes did. Uh, but nobody carried it to the extreme that we did, you know, prepared as much as we did or were as serious about it as we were.
Mm-hmm. Well, how much of it was related to the American Christian Patriot Movement? Because I was reading an article about the CSA on the Encyclopedia of Arkansas website, and it said that you, your group said the CSA was one of the many militias that supported the American Christian Patriot Movement. Followers of this ideology supported hostility against any form of government above the county level, vilify Jews and non-whites as children of Satan. So there's your Satan seed, isn't it? They obsess about achieving religious and racial purification in the United States, believe in a conspiracy theory that regards Jewish leaders as controlling important financial and media positions within the U.S. and advocate the overthrow of the U.S. government. To what extent would you have said that the CSA supported any or all of those elements? Uh, pretty close to all of it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we were introduced to the racist aspect uh, by the Christian Patriots Defense League up in Illinois in early 79. But the way they introduced it was strictly on the racial aspect. That was really not much of a turnoff for us. I I bought some books there. Two of them I can still remember. One was called The Great Achievements of the Negro Race, and it was just blank pages. Oh, right. (laughs) Clever. Very clever. (laughs) Forget about George Washington Carver and Frederick Douglass and so many. Yeah. Yeah, there was another book about Martin Luther King called Martin Lucifer Kuhn. Wow. Uh, so, you know, those really didn't do a whole lot for us. Yeah. But later yeah. on in that year, when we met Dan Gaiman, Gaiman came from a patriotic point of, you know, believing in the, the United States, believing in the government, believing in God's uh, heritage for the United States and his mm-hmm. purpose. So that was easier for us to kind of swallow right uh, and then once i started really studying gaiman's teachings the, you know, and he mixed a lot of scriptures whereas it, at uh, christian Patriots defense league there wasn't too much on mm-hmm. scriptures and god and that kind of stuff that was more the conspiracy theories it was mainly just being racially in your face are you familiar with uh william potter gale no i haven't heard of him uh, he was a leader of the Christian identity movement back in those days. And he was at that first meeting. And I can remember I I was one of the ones who got to get up and speak to everybody at one point. He came up to me last night or the later on that day, had a cigarette in one hand, a can of beer in the other, and said, you know, he, he walks up to me and says, boy, if you're going to talk about God, you need to use his name and not Lord. That's a pain. All right. Okay. Well, you know, in your face, huh? Yeah, you know, and you got a can of beer and a a cigarette, so I don't put much credibility into what. (laughs) Yeah, that could do it. So, what's happening? Then your group's becoming more racist, more conspiracy theory driven, and you've got guns, and you've got an identity movement going on. So, take us through what's the next step, and what happened after this. Well, so this is uh, around nineteen. Of course, in those days, the big thing was the uh, farm crisis. You know, Mm -hmm. farmers were losing their land. And this hadn't been too far since the 70s when uh, uh, R.V. Wade was uh, first made legal. So abortion was made legal. Prayer was kicked out of school. So those uh, were major signs to us that the end was coming. You had the farm crisis. And it looked like, you know, the government was betraying the American people. And then in 83, uh, after we were became known as CSA, 
Gordon Call was a tax protester up in the Dakotas. Two U.S. Marshals try to kill him. He uh, shoots both of them. I think kills one is all. Might have killed both of them. I don't remember. We saw the news reports on TV. Didn't mean a whole lot to us because he's up in the Dakotas. Well, about six months later, he's found in southern or northern Arkansas, which is our territory. And he's in a shootout with uh, FBI, local sheriff. Sheriff gets killed. Gordon Cog is killed. So this was our first major uh, martyr mm -hmm. uh, where we perceived that the government had made war on the Christian Patriot people. So Jim went up to uh, Idaho to the Aryan Congress in uh, June of eight, or July of yeah, July of 83. So I think it was uh, Call was killed in June. So right after that, of course, that was the talk of, of everybody at that mm -hmm. point. And everybody wanted to know what we were about it since it was in our backyard. So we had to decide if we were going to do something in retribution for call uh, or do nothing. And if we did nothing, that would kind of kick us out of the right wing movement. So we decided to go ahead and do something. And uh, uh, we devised a plot to uh, blow up the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. Uh, mm the same federal building, of course, that Timothy Mouvet did 12 years later. Right. Uh, so we had our munitions guys start to build uh, a rocket launcher, had about 12 or 16 rockets that would be bolted into the back of a van. We'd drive across the street, park, open the doors, and all these rockets would go into the building and do whatever damage it was going to do. While he was uh, building it, one of the rockets went off in his hands accidentally scarred his hands pretty bad. So we took that, Jim and I took that as as a sign from God that was not what we were supposed to do. That if right. we were going to do some retribution to call, it had to be something more personal uh, to, towards call. Well, some friends of ours had been arrested for harboring call. Uh, so we decided, you know, make that the mission. Uh -huh. So we devised plans to assassinate the federal judge the main FBI agent and the prosecuting attorney that was over the case of our friends. Uh, so we cased their homes and, uh, you know, made plans. And then on December 26th, we were going to leave and, and assassinate all three of them, which, of course, in those days, no federal judge had ever been assassinated. So right. it would have, you know, hit, hit the news. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. And, uh, so we packed up our two vehicles on the night of uh, December 25th, and we prayed that if, you know, if this is what God wanted, let everything go smoothly. If it wasn't, you know, stop us somewhere along the way. Well, we got up the next morning and it had snowed and there was no forecast of snow at all. <laughs> Must be a sign from God. <laughs> Must be a sign from God. But, shouldn't go you know, kill these judges. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we, we thought about it, and Jim thought about it, and the other guys all wanted to. There were six of us involved with it. Myself, Jim, and one of the other elders were going to be dropped off in a nearby town as an alibi. The other three guys would go do the assassination. So, you know, we decided to go ahead and do it. It was about a four-hour, five-hour drive over to Fort Smith. And uh, about halfway there, we rounded a curve, and another vehicle was in our lane. And we ran head on and told of the van that we were in. So, of course, it told of the vehicle that ran into us also. Mm -hmm. So while 
everybody else was trying to you know move the vehicles from one from the van to the other vehicle i had to get out and see if the couple was okay it was an elderly couple of course in those days there's no cell phones yeah. so we had to wait for somebody to drive by to you know go get help obviously that stopped that particular plan too that would do it that would do it so yeah, head-on collisions tend to ruin your plans <laughs> yeah. that was december of 83 and we just we had done some other minor kind of stuff but those were the two big plans and we just just felt like god didn't want us to go into that kind of extremism in the meantime of course out of the 83 congress then you had the formation of the order which was some former area nations members and some former csa members so they did start doing some serious stuff you know counterfeiting their rod armor cars killed the jewish talk show host alan berg so they mm. got a lot of notoriety and the heat was on them and then in uh Oh, in 84, some of, you know, the orders started getting busted and we figured, well, it was just a matter of time. In the spring, late spring, early summer of uh, 84, uh, Allison and I were disagreeing about the course of the group. Where was God really leading us? Where should we go? And I wanted to go back to how it was when I first came there. Mm. Uh, Jim did not. He wanted to go on build a bigger and better army, all that kind of stuff. Right. And it, we got into some heated arguments uh, and it pretty much split our friendship to the point to where in June, I finally just broke and said, okay, if you want this, if you want it to start, I'll, I'll start this so-called second American revolution and the race war and all that kind of stuff. I devised a plan. There was a park up in Kansas City, Missouri that was became known as, as a gay park. That supposedly on Saturday nights, there was a lot of traffic out in this park. So I said, have our munitions guy get me a silenced weapon. I'm going to take one of the guys with us that was racing Kansas City because I'd never even been there. Mm-hmm. So that's knew how to drive around, but he did. And then also get me a briefcase, uh, a bomb briefcase full of C4. And uh, I'll use the silenced weapon to kill any gays in the park. And then we'll go find an adult bookstore and I'll blow up the bookstore. Because these were two symbols of what everybody in the right wing stood against. Mm -hmm. Homosexuality and pornography, right? So Jim had the munitions guy prepare it. My friend and I left uh, late Saturday, drove to Kansas City, which was about uh, four hours away. Got to the park around 11 o'clock at night, drove around, I don't know, 10, 12 times and saw absolutely nobody. Nobody in the place. Nobody. How ironic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was driving. I was, you know, the passenger seat. Out, and I had my window down, had the silenced weapon. If I'd seen anybody, I was going to assume they were gay and just pop them, right? And nobody was there. So I, I said, well, let's go find a adult bookstore, see if. Maybe that's what we should do. So we found a pretty good size adult bookstore eventually. And I told him to stay in the car. I'll take the bomb in. So I walked in with this briefcase. And the clerk says, well, come on in, but you can't take your briefcase in. Well, then obviously it hit me. Of course, you can't take a briefcase in. They'll think you're going to steal mm-hmm. or shoplift, you know, dirty magazines, videos. Yep, yeah, that, that even crossed my <laughs> mind. So... 
you know, I couldn't very much leave it with him, go to the back. You know, I, I didn't know yeah. what to do. So I said, I'll go take it back to the car and uh, I'll come back. So I went back out to the car and told my friend what had happened. So honestly, we didn't know what to do. So it's too late to go back to the farm. So I said, let's just spend the night. Maybe God will show us tomorrow what we're supposed to do. So we got up the next morning and uh, we didn't have a clue. So he said, well, let's drive over to my church. I'll show you where I grew up here and what church I went to. I said, okay, that'd, uh, that'd be interesting. So we went over there. As soon as we drove up, I said, are you sure this is it? He said, yeah. I said, well, I hate to tell you this, but it's not your church no more. It's the Metropolitan Community Church, which, of course, was the gay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an affirming church. Yeah. And, uh, of course, he got pretty angry with that. I said, maybe this is what we're supposed to do. Right. What have they done to my church? Yeah. So we wow. walk in. Of course, they're assuming we're just two homosexuals walking in, had a briefcase. And, of course, we stereotype-wise, we're thinking there's this sexual orgy going on in this church. Of course, we go in there and there's not, you know. Yeah, they're having a service. Yeah. Now, the guys are sitting on one side of the, in the pews. The girls are sitting on the other side of the pews. So I had told my friend, you know, we got to stick around for half an hour. We just can't sit down, trip the. Yeah, leave a briefcase. Don't mind this. Yeah. <laughs> Pay no attention yeah. to this briefcase. We're just going to leave now yeah. after 30 seconds. Yeah. Not so, suspicious, suspicious at all. Yeah. So we stuck around, and of course, the service starts, the pastor comes out, talks about his sexual relationship with the music director, who's male also. And so we figure, well, this is it. You know, this is what we're supposed to do. And, you know, we stuck around for the announcements, all that kind of stuff. Well, one thing, obviously, that you're not supposed to do in a military situation is put a face on the enemy which is difficult to do if you're sitting in the midst of the enemy. Mm -hmm. So I started looking around and realized that these people don't look any different than I do. You know, if I saw them on the street, I wouldn't know they were gay. You know, I wouldn't think nothing about it. They're dressed like I am. They're dressed normally. They look normal, that kind of stuff. And then I started thinking about, well, none of these people have ever hurt me, my family, friends, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. What have they ever done to me? Yeah, what have they ever Perfect done to strangers me? to you, yeah. yeah. And here I am contemplating killing 60, 70 people, right? Well, then I went from that to the next step was, is this really going to accomplish what I have been programmed to, to think that it's going to accomplish, you know, this uprise? Mm -hmm. We had contacted various groups and said, hey, there's going to be something happen on the news. You'll know it when you see it, and it's a sign to rise up. So I thought, well, is, this, is that really what's going to happen, or is what's going to happen as I do this, and I either die in a shootout or spend my rest of my life in prison or on death row, and none of those were appealing to me. Mm. And so I was, I was pretty much talking myself out of this. Well, then the next thing that happened was the final step and the music started. And then I saw these people doing what we did in our church services, you know, lift their heads up, put their hands up and just start worshiping God. And that changed everything mm. for me. I realized instantly that these people were no different than me. They're trying to find their place in God. Like I'm still trying to find my place in God. 
with all the quarreling Jim and I had been doing over the last year. For the first time, I didn't see them as homosexuals. I saw them just as Christians, and I couldn't kill Christians. Mm, fellow Christians, yeah. Yeah, so that was about half an hour that we were there. So I picked up the briefcase, told my friend to come on, we're leaving. So we get out to the car. I explained to him everything, and he said, oh, good, because I really didn't think we were supposed to do it either. All right. I was thinking the same thing. I didn't want to yeah. say it. <laughs> you know I didn't want saying? to be the first one. Yeah. So we decided... You know, we're just going to go back to the farm because we got there. Ellison and all the guys were around the TV waiting for some sort of a news event. Mm, something uh, big's going to happen. Yeah. And we walk in. He says, "What? what's going on? What, what happened? I explained everything to him. And he looked at me in front of all the men and said, you're nothing but a coward. Now, and he wow. said, I, I'm just, I washed my hands of you. And uh, I, I, to I feel totally out of his grace you know right that was the end for him yeah for you and him yeah when we get back in just a few minutes in the second half of this chat with carrie we're going to find out what happened next there's actually a lot more to the story and there's a lot more to this episode as well we want to get into the sort of cult psychology behind this group and i want to ask carrie what keeps people in cults what keeps people in right-wing, alt-right type groups that we're seeing more and more of now. And in fact, we've seen this even in the Obama era. In fact, I saw a statistic once that during the Obama administration, white militant groups just shot up by, you know, like tenfold. So, and in the Trump administration, of course, now we're seeing the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers. We saw a lot of that in the January 6th insurrection. So I want to get Kerry's unique perspective as a member of a former white supremacist group what keeps people in those kind of groups, what attracts them. How do you get someone out of a movement like that? If Is it possible? It's very similar, if not the same, as a cult dynamic. We're going to talk about his activism. And then at the very end of the show, I want to talk to him about Christian nationalism because this is something that Kerry is seeing a lot of overlap with far-right or alt-right groups getting increasingly in bed with Christian nationalism. In fact, just the other day as I'm doing this recording now, there was a big flap up in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. Now, I've mentioned before, I've been doing a lot of research on Doug Wilson. He runs Christ Church out of Moscow, Idaho. Well, there was a news story on CNN that came out just the other day about Bonners Ferry, Idaho, which is a little town. And there was this big furor about potential book banning in a public library. And I started looking into who are some of the groups behind this. And among others, there's a group called Moms for Liberty, which has some real deep sort of mega pocket donors mega donors on the Republican side. That's one concern. But then there's a church up there, a lordship church. And I started looking into this church and these guys are pushing this American redoubt mythology. They're going to break away from the United States. They're going to have their own sort of country up there in the Palouse region, the northwest of Idaho, Washington State, Montana, up in that region. And these guys are preaching like a message of hate. And these guys are behind the effort to ban books, anything that in their view promotes LGBTQ values, critical race theory, any sort of black voices. They wanted to ban a book about Frederick Douglass, of all people. You know, I mean, so this is where this is going. And this is a danger. This is a concern. And we're seeing these guys are serious, like survivalists. The pastor of this church up there in Bonners Ferry, he runs an Army-Navy surplus store on their church website. There's a link to a survivalist store where you can buy guns and all sorts of 
you know, doomsday prepper stuff. I mean, these guys are serious, hardcore survivalists. They want to break away. So th these are the kind of people we're talking about. And that was in the orbit of groups that Kerry was running with. So this is a real concern going forward. Now, I wanted to mention before we go back to the second half, I wanted to talk about what's coming up here in the next few weeks on Mindship Podcast. I had a conversation the other day with a good friend of mine, Dr. David DeAndre. He's an expat like me. He's living out of Canada. And he's got a new book out called Tulip. The Poisonous Flower of Calvinism. And so we had a really good conversation, kind of took a deep dive into the backstory of Calvinism, the history of Calvin a little bit, and why exactly he would say that as a doctrine, as a theology, why is Calvinism in a way a poisonous flower playing off that tulip sort of uh, acronym. So that's coming up here in the next episode. And then I've got a chat scheduled with my good friend, a returning guest, Andrew Gurevich. We're going to be talking about how the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, how did that book impact on our deconstruction? And there's some really interesting stuff because, of course, I did my doctoral studies on the book of Ezekiel. And so I've got a lot to say about that book. It actually, ironically, in a weird way, helped me to deconstruct my views of God. So I think that is going to be a really fascinating episode. I'm, I'm so looking forward to reconnecting with my good friend Andrew again. Oh, and before I forget, I've got something else that's really, really cool, really exciting. I've got a an interview booked next week with Dave Warnock. I had him on the show before talking about his work with Dying Out Loud. He's got a new book out called Childish Things, and it's a fantastic book. In fact, I would recommend getting the Audible version if you can, because Dave actually narrates the book. And it's his long journey uh, out of evangelicalism, out of being a pastor, and becoming an atheist. And I won't tell you anymore. I don't want to spoil it, but that is a fantastic book. If, like me, you grew up in the church in the 70s, 80s, 90s, if you were a part of that movement and then deconstructed and got out. And Dave's story is incredibly personal. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Dave Warnock next week. So that's coming up too. Look for that episode. And then we've got our first MindShift Zoom call coming up in the month of September here. In just a few weeks, we've got Luna Corbden, who was my guest just on the last episode of the show. And they're going to be coming back on the 25th of September. We're going to be doing that call at 8 o'clock, and you can access that by being a Patreon supporter of the show. And in fact, speaking of Patreon supporters, I've got a new Patreon supporter. Thank you to Johannes Kutcher. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's from Germany. He contacted me a while ago, said he'd been listening to the show for a long time, and it greatly helped him, so he wanted to support the show. So he's been added to our Closed Mindship Podcast Facebook group. So really cool to see people from around the world being impacted by the work I do. So if it helps you, uh, consider supporting the show on Patreon and joining our Closed Mindship Podcast Facebook group. All right, let's get on back into the second half of this conversation with Carrie Noble. Exactly how this Covenant Sword and Arm of the Lord group really devolved into a cult group, how to get people out, and what is it all about. Let's go on into the second half of this chat. So I decided I wanted and just didn't want to stay there. It wasn't the same place it was when I first moved there. Mm. So I left, you know, Jim's house and I just said, you know, Lord, I want to leave. And uh, the Lord just spoke to me very clearly and said, you cannot leave. You're not allowed to. And I just started bawling. Uh, I said, I just, I'm tired. I am so tired. I just, I just want to take my family, go back to Texas or somewhere and start all over. No, nope, you can't. You got to stay. And so for the next several months, I'd prayed several, several times and always got the same answer. I got to stick around. 
So by the end of 84, of course, the order starts getting busted. CSA members, former members were getting busted. So we knew it was just a matter of time for people started turning state's evidence. In late summer of 84, an Arkansas state uh, police officer, a sergeant, and an ATF agent were at a press conference that I was holding and talked to me after the press conference and introduced themselves and said, if you just ever need somebody to talk to, you know, we're here if you just want to talk. So, okay. So in February of 85, we all pretty much knew everything was coming down pretty soon. You know, we started seeing a lot of black SUVs in, in town, town of 4,000 people. Mm, kind of sticks it, out. Yeah, sticks yeah. out like it sticks up. So they're so, watching you now by this point. Yeah. yeah the and, net's closing in. Yeah. So a lot of stuff's happening across the country. So we knew it was just a matter of time. So I went to the Arkansas State Police Officer and I said in February and I said, look, if a warrant ever comes down for Jim's arrest, come tell me first. Don't let the federal government come in and force. Otherwise, you'll have a shootout you can't even begin to imagine. Mm -hmm. You know as well as I do that we've been training for years and years. He said, well, as far as I know, there's not one. But if one ever does come down and I find out about it, I'll come see you first. So April 17th, 18th, uh, he came down and said, you know, yeah, I got a rest for him. Go talk to Jim, see if he'll surrender. So I went and talked to Jim. Jim said, nope, not going to surrender. No chance, son. No chance. Right now, I'm going to pray about it tonight and see what God wants me to do. Now, we were harboring four members of the order at that particular time. Mm. So, you know, it was pretty tense uh, on our property. So I went back to the to the officer and I said, no, he, he wants to pray about it. Come back tomorrow. He said, oh, okay. So he came back at 8 o'clock the next morning, and Jim still would not surrender. And, and Gene Irby was his name, and Gene said, Carrie, this is serious. So I said, believe me, Gene, I know how serious this is. I said, so what's going to happen now? Well, by mid-afternoon, the FBI is going to have roadblocks. There's only two roads out from mm -hmm. our property. And he said, both those roads are going to be blocked off. Uh, you won't be able to leave. Nobody can come in. You know, and we're going to be at a standstill. So Jim sent uh, six of us into town real fast after Gene left to get some supplies. Came back around noon. Uh, they had already set up the roadblocks, so they wouldn't let any of us back in. Mm -hmm. So I talked to the FBI. And I said, look, if I don't get back in, you are going to have to figure that you're going to have a shootout on your hands. I'm the only one that can talk to Ellis and mm -hmm. see if I can persuade him to surrender. If I'm not there, there's no way he's going to surrender. And they all talked about it and said, okay, you're, you can go back in, but the other five guys can't. So I get to go back in. So the next day, uh, I got woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning, was told that there were snipers uh, around the property about every 10 yards, and uh, Ellison wanted to see me. So I dressed in civilian you know, civvies rather than uh, camouflage and uh, went and saw Amy and Jim said, well, go out there and see what they want. I said, well, what they want is you. you know? yeah. Not rocket a, science. They want you yeah. to surrender. They got a rest warrant for you, buddy. You know? yeah. So I had to go out there and, uh, you know, my arms were up in the air. You know, I didn't know if I made a wrong move. I'm going to get riddled with bullets. Yeah. I saw one of the snipers started heading towards him. Got fairly close. He yelled out, stop. 
I said, what are y'all doing? Are you trying to start a war? And he's on his headphones. He said, are you willing to go down and talk to our commander? Sure. He said, go down the hill to the place y'all call the valley, which was one, my settlement. He'll meet you down there. I said, okay. It was about a quarter mile away. So again, I'm walking downhill, quarter mile, and I can see cops all around me. Right. Right Everywhere. Me. Yeah. And uh, again, not knowing if I make the wrong move, you know, I'm dead as a doorknob. And uh, I get down there. This guy comes up, introduces himself to me. And he's the uh, tactical leader of the hostage rescue team out of uh, Quantico for the FBI. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the tactical leader. And on this, for our situation, he was also the negotiator. Name was Danny Colson. And I ended up liking Danny just right off the bat, which is something about him. So we started talking. He said, look, I, I, I want you to listen to me clearly. I said, okay. He said, we will not fire the first shot. We will wait this out as long as we have to. But we are going to arrest Jim Ellis. I said, well, okay. He said, but if y'all fire the first shot, here's what's going to happen. I've got a 50 caliber machine gun on the hill where y'all burn your trash. And it's aimed right at you. And mm. I've got a Huey helicopter over the hill that's got a 50 caliber on it. The first shot is going to start flying and it's going to start knocking holes into your walls just like the other one does. And everybody's going to start shooting. There was 300 federal, state, local law enforcement on this. He said within 30 seconds, every man, woman, and child in your compound will be dead. And I just went, wow. Yeah, some overwhelming firepower for sure. And he said, you need to take this as a compliment because they only send us after into the most dangerous situations. Mm. And you guys have got the reputation. And he said, but this is not what we want. We want a peaceful resolution. And I said, believe me, I want a peaceful resolution too. I do not want my friends and my family or, or me dying in a shootout. So we had a four-day armed standoff. Eventually, I was able to talk Ellison into surrendering. He surrendered, and we had a peaceful surrender. Nobody mm. got killed. Yeah, because was that before the Waco incident or after? No, that was that was uh, eight years before. Right. Waco. So you were a, a forerunner to what ended up happening. We we didn't want to have happen at the right. Branch Davidian compound in Waco. Yeah, because it was interesting. The our siege started on April nineteenth. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Branch Davidian fire was on April nineteenth. Hmm. Oklahoma City bombing was on April 19th. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, of it course, was... Patriots Day is April 19th when the Revolutionary War started. So, right. a major... Uh, major date. Uh, so, is that, is that was that then the end of the CSA? You They arrested Jim Ellison. Does everything just go away at that point and it's all well, over? What happened then? Ellison got arrested, of course. They searched the property for four days after that. I was allowed to be there while the search was going on. And, and honestly, Clint, I was very impressed with how the agents handled themselves during the siege mm -hmm. and the uh, search of the property also. Because, you, you know, again, we had serial types of them tearing up the place. You know, uh, they handled themselves professionally. They tore up as, as little as possible. And... Uh, I always said afterward, after it was all over, that 
the feds left the place in better condition than after four days than it was when they first right. got it all know. back and better than what it was. Yeah, I mean, they fed the animals. They did all kinds of stuff. You know. But from what I've seen, they found some serious weapons because it wasn't just weapons, too. It was like you had uh, poison and things like that on the compound with this. Yeah, 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 it was like a plot to poison. Barrel. Yeah, 30 yeah. gallon barrel of a cyanide. We had a yeah. C4, we had a wall rocket, we had silencers, yeah. hand grenades, uh, some serious rocket. gear. Yeah. And of course, you know, we've been building all this stuff for quite a number of years. Right. What what was the plan for all that hardware? I mean, obviously on one level you're going to defend the compound, which you talked about before, but yeah. at some level now you're actually planning attacks on the U.S. government or gay churches or whatever it might be. Whatever. Uh, the Sinai, we we had planned to put that into a water system, a major city, believing in those days that it would kill a lot of people. Of course, I found out years later, the worst that it would have done would be make a few people sick because it would become so diluted in yeah. the water system. So, you know, we we didn't know what we were doing on some of that kind of stuff. We now we had a boatload of uh, C four. We knew what to do with that dynamite. Now our dynamite, we'd had it so long that it was becoming unstable. So the government blew all of it up in this huge water tank. Mm -hmm. You know that you see sometimes in the movies and stuff. So yeah, four days they're throwing this stuff in, blasting caps and everything. Yeah. You know, and it's just boom, boom. Must have been a hell of an explosion. Yeah. But uh, I, I, from what I understand, you ended up serving some time in prison with your connections to the CSA. Yeah. So how did uh, that come about? Five weeks after Ellison got arrested, anybody who had any kind of leadership role got arrested. So there were five of us that got arrested on May 31st. I went to uh, the county jail where Jim was. That was part of the surrender agreement that if I got arrested, I'd be put in the same cell with Jim. And they did that. So I, you know, Jim was in isolation. They put me in there with him. Here was the interesting thing. I get in there. Jim doesn't even say, how have you been? What's going on? How's the family? How's everybody? That kind of stuff. He doesn't, doesn't ask any questions. Just says, look, I'm, I'm uh, turning state's evidence for the government against all the leaders of the right wing movement. And I said, what? Wow. <laughs> it's a he quick said, flip. I've prepared a list of uh, people I've met dates and all that kind of stuff to, that they can use as evidence. Uh, he said, you were right about the right-wing movement, and I was wrong. So I, now wow. I think that God wants me to, you know, help the government destroy the right-wing. And I just, I was speechless. That's shocking. So he's going to sing like a canary oh, like just, five minutes after he gets yeah, in prison. He had planned this for a long time. He's in, He's been in jail 40 days. Right, yeah. And it probably at least half of that time he's been talking to the government. He said, your memory's always been better than mine. Look at this list and see if I need to fix anything. Well, half the list was just a bunch of lies. Right. You know, and the other half, I said, Jim, half of this stuff is just stuff you told me about. I, I wasn't even there for so much of this. He hmm. said, yeah, but just try to remember stuff I told you in days, things, stuff. And I don't know if you remember, there was this pope in the 80s, I think it was, that had only been in office for like a month and died. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of suspicion about how he was, how he died, was he murdered, that kind of stuff. Ellison even had that Pope's name on this list and that we were on the fringes of whoever 
Right. You were somehow connected to that, I, even. I mean, it was so all the way far, to the Vatican. Yes, so far <laughs> out of left field, you know. You got your fingers in a lot of pies, man. I'd say. <laughs> but it woke me up to the reality of who this man was, you right. know, and what he had become, and that he was just a coward. Yeah. Yeah, he was going to flip that quick. He was going to flip that quick. So shortly thereafter, he went to. Uh, he went to trial for RICO, racketeering charges, mm -hmm. was found guilty, and I uh, got 20 years. Uh, he was still facing weapons charges, and most of us were facing weapons charges, you know, the other five guys. The government talked to me and said, if you'll turn state's evidence against Jim, you won't even go to jail. So I said, not a chance in the world will I betray this man, not because... He probably doesn't deserve it, but he's, he did for me, more for me than any man on this planet. He, he taught me how to work hard. We, we cut cedar in, in those days. He taught me how to work hard. He gave me a chance to, you know, teach him Bible, which was what I wanted to do. That was my calling. I, I will not betray him, even if it means me going to jail. And they said, okay, that's fine. If you'll go ahead and, and take a plea bargain, will drop, I had 21 charges against me for guns. They said, if, if you'll just plea bargain uh, down to a conspiracy to, to possess unlawful and unregistered weapons, you know, be, you'll be facing a five years maximum and we won't argue against parole, but you'll have to move to Texas. Can I stay in Arkansas? You won't have to testify against Elson. I said, I'll do that. Yeah, that I can do. I'll take five years. I, I knew if I went to court on this, to trial, I'd get 10 years for the weapons. That mm -hmm. was the max. And five years was half of that. So I said, sure, especially if you're not going to not argue against parole or probation. So I said, I, yeah, I'll take that. So I went back and told Jim, I'm uh, I'm going to uh, take a plea bargain. Calls me a coward again. Said, no, you got to go to trial. No, I'm not, I'm not going to go to trial. I said, mm -hmm. You got 20 years. You went to trial. Yeah. <laughs> Try I, that on. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, they're out to kick our hineys, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, you and the other guys, y'all can do what you want, but I'm not going to go to trial. The other guys, you know, I talked with some of them. I said, y'all do what you want to do. This is what I'm going to do. Well, then a few days later, uh, Ellison and I are in the exercise room in, in the county jail, which, you know, it's a padded room size of three or four jail cells, you know, that you just walk around. And there's a window that's kind of opaque glass. You know, you can't really, you can't see out of it, but it lifts it. Mm -hmm. So we're in there, and he said, uh, I want you to do something for me. I said, okay. I want you to tell the government that you were the power behind the throne, that you were blackmailing me. You had something on me. We'll figure out what later. But everything that we did was your idea. I said, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. No chance. <laughs> I, said, I said, first of all, they would never, ever, believe it. I said, second of all, I'm not going to do it. You know, you chose the direction of the group. You know, you, you just need to handle this on your own. And he just looked at me and said, so you're going to betray me. I started crying and I just, in my mind, I'm going to betray you. I could send you to life, you know, the rest of your life mm -hmm. if I testified against you, which is what they wanted me to do. You know, you would never see the light of day out of prison again. You know, I'm not betraying you. You're betraying me and you're betraying everybody else at the farm, you know, by your actions. That's 
but I I didn't say it. You know, it's just like, yeah. So basically, Jim and the other guys they decided to go ahead and plead down uh, to the conspiracy thing. Also, because Jim was already facing twenty years, he pled down, and they just ran his uh, concurrent. The other guys, I I ended up getting a five year sentence. The other guys got one guy got six months. I think the other three guys got uh, probation, mm. two-year probation. Because they had they were minor leadership. Right. So it wasn't as bad as you initially thought. So how did you end up getting out of that thing? Because as you're describing the whole journey, it strikes me that there's a lot of parallels to cult psychology. We haven't used that word yet, but, I mean, you're describing a classic yeah. you know, compound. You've got a charismatic leader. You've got a group of right. dedicated followers. You've got an ideology. It's certainly an us versus them mentality. Yeah. And you just start going down the line. You could have ended up as a Branch Davidian or a Jim Jones, Jonestown kind of situation. Yes. Um, is that what ended up getting you out in the end? Was well, kind of seeing the light in the whole thing? Here's what happened. Because I didn't, I didn't realize until after everything was over with, uh, and I had time to think in prison, reflect, and that kind of stuff. I believe that we became a destructive cult in the fall of 79. Once we adapted, uh, you know, the paramilitary was strong. Once mm-hmm. we adapted Christian identity, something happened to Jim in the fall of 79. At that point, the paramilitary leader that we had, they just went off the radar. It, it had quickly become something that I did not move there for by the fall of 79. Mm-hmm. But I love the place. I love the people. I love I loved community. Community for me was everything. Yeah, and we need had, community. Yeah. Yeah, we and, really do. So there was so much I loved in spite of what I didn't like, right? Well, what happened for me, it, it, after CSA was formed in January of 81, we took on that name. We started putting out a pamphlet called uh, the CSA Journal, 24 pages, you know, book, eight and a half, folded in half, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. We had 2,000 people on our mailing list. So I put this thing together every month. We had Christian stuff, writings in there that I did. We had military field craft stuff in there. I had articles from other sources that we got in was in there. So it was a hodgepodge of different kind of stuff in there. Well, one of the things I put in there, I had gotten an article from some right-wing group, I can't even remember now, that said, even doctors know that there's difference between the races because doctors won't give a transfusion from a black guy to a white guy, which, of course, is not true. Yeah, but in those days, I didn't true. know that was true. I, you I didn't have the internet. To, yeah, we didn't yeah, couldn't fact check. You know, yeah. our local library wouldn't have carried anything that they told <laughs> yeah. me otherwise. So I just accepted it as true. So I put that in our in the journal, and it wasn't two weeks. I got a wad of papers like this from a doctor, and I, I had no idea how he got the journal. But he sent me all kinds of material that showed that that was not true. Right, just debunked the whole thing. Well, I started reading it, and I went, uh-oh, I know where this is going. So I had to fold it all up, put it, put it away, mm-hmm. and I... I knew I'd be responsible for it if I read it anymore, but it put this doubt. Yeah, a cognitive the, dissonance. Yeah. Yeah. So I, then I started, of course, thinking, well, if, if I've been lied to about this, what else have I been lied to? Right. 
The big turning point for me in March of, of uh, 83, so I'm the Bible teacher, so I'm going to teach a class uh, on uh, the apocalypse, what could happen, you know, as laid out in the scriptures. Of course, Matthew 24 is, is the groundwork for any kind of apocalyptic discussion in the, in the scriptures. So I'm doing my Bible study on Matthew 24, and there's a scripture I had read I don't know how many times that all of a sudden jumped out to me in a sort of a different point of view. And the scripture says that except those days be short, even the very elect could be deceived. And it hit me, how in the world can God's elect be deceived during the end times? You mm -hmm. know, that, all of a sudden that didn't make sense to me. So I took it a step further and the thought came to me that you're not deceived by anything that's the opposite. You know, like you cannot be deceived by a $3 bill because there's no such thing. You can be deceived by a counterfeit $20, right? Mm -hmm. So then I thought, well, the only way that the elect could maybe be deceived by what was going on in the last days is if the last days looked like the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of the devil, the Antichrist, like we had always been taught, right? Because mm -hmm. we had always been taught in the churches, and our theology was that in the last days was going to be the worst that man could do on the earth. All of a sudden, I turned that around and said, what if the last days could be the best that man could do, but it still fell short of the glory of God? Mm. And that made sense to me all of a sudden. Well, then the next logical conclusion for me was, and if that's true, then everything I've been taught about the nature of man can't be true. It's right. the opposite. Now right? you got to question that. All the now dominoes you... start to fall. Yeah. <laughs> the so, house of yeah. cards comes tumbling down. Of course, you know, we were taught that man was basically evil and sinful, and were it not for the grace of God, would manifest the very works of the devil, right? Now I believed that man is basically good and divine, and were it not for the weakness of the flesh, would manifest the kingdom of God by nature. Well, that's a total 180 degrees from mm -hmm. everything I had been taught and everything I had believed up to this point. So I went and talked to Ellison about it. Of course, Ellison blew a half and said, no, that's not mm -hmm. true. You know, you're just trying to find a way out because you're afraid. Right. You're questioning too much now. So I, I wasn't strong enough to fight him at that particular point, but I, I couldn't get rid of this feeling. So when the siege happened, what was important for me was the siege had to prove that I was right. If the mm. government acted honorable during the siege, it was a step of me knowing that I was right in what I had believed for two years now. And, of course, the government went way beyond my expectations. You, know? you said they acted really professionally and honorably. Very professional. I mean, even from the first time I met Colson all the way until the they finished the uh, search, you know, everything was handled correctly. They did very well. I had right. no... I had no qualms with what the government did after that. The government could have made it so much worse on us. There, there was so oh, yeah. many things they could have charged us with that they didn't charge us. 
they just wanted our group to be gone. And they wanted Ellison more than they wanted anybody else. Yeah, they didn't want a firefight and everything else. So that cognitive dissonance finally caught up to you. Well, I know we got a little bit of time left, but I'm interested to find out. We were talking earlier about you guys were the CSA was one of the forerunners of some of these modern day militia groups. And of course, we've seen more and more of that, especially during the Obama presidency. There was just this explosion of right wing you know, militia groups and all the rest of it. And just recently, as we're doing this recording, just a few weeks ago, there was a, a big arrest up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, the Patriot Front. And I know you've been following that story. What can sure. you tell us about, as you see it now, your perspective, you know, oh, what, 20, 30 years later, what is your take on these modern day sort of far right militia groups, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, those kind of things, the Patriot Front, Christian nationalism combined with this militia movement? Well, once I got out of prison, of course, I was I had a five year sentence, so I couldn't speak out while I was still on parole. Right. I finished my sentence uh, at the end of July in uh, 1990. So I was able to start speaking out against hate and violence and started doing that almost immediately. Started speaking at terrorism conferences and law enforcement conferences and that kind of stuff. One thing I always told them back, even way back then. It doesn't really matter what you call yourself as a group. And of course, now with the internet, you know, some you have a website that calls themselves, you know, the the monster militia from hell or whatever. And it could be two guys, you know, you don't know. You know, it could be two teenagers in their in mom's basement or whatever. So I've never cared what they call themselves. Usually, you know, that's symbolic of something, but it doesn't in itself doesn't necessarily mean something. Sometimes it can define their belief system, like especially if they're a Klan group or a neo-Nazi group. Militia will to will define itself to certain degrees. So the specifics of any one group isn't what is isn't really what I look for. What I look for is is a particular ideology. And in the ideology, for example, with the Proud Boys or any of those guys, being more militia or what was known in our days as constitutionalist, most of them, like our group, if you took those guys separate, and you know, let's say there's 100 Proud Boys, as an example, if you took those 100 guys and talked to them individually, 99 uh, out of 100 could not explain to you their purpose, their mission, their goals, how they envision the future, none of that kind of stuff. But they're going on by rhetoric. They'll spout the rhetoric. You know, they'll mouth it and talk, but they don't necessarily understand what they're doing. Right. It's not all total buy-in. Yeah. All they're doing in their mind is they see a problem. They think they're the answer. Right. right? And that's typical. So, you know, you look at them, uh, January 6th is an example like we talked about earlier, most of those people had no clue what they were really doing there. Mm-hmm. None of them, I would bet, had any plan for after they attacked the Capitol. You know, are we going to hang out uh, Mike Pence? Are we going to take Nancy Pelosi, go hang her? What kind of government are we going to form afterward? They never thought about that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, right? In a mob mentality, you don't think. Just like in the cult mentality, there's a certain point where you don't think logically any longer. You're just going with the flow of the group. 
So once it all started happening at, at the, the Capitol, most of the people were just, the fervor was up, the adrenaline's going, somebody starts running towards the Capitol. So now everybody- yeah, Let's keep going. Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe this is the second American revolution. As we maybe this is it. Yeah. <laughs> this is the they storm hope, finally. <laughs> yeah, they hope so. They all don't queuing on. Yeah. So, of course, we know what happens. And, and as soon as it all settled down and people started getting arrested, arrested I tell, told other reporters and podcasts, you know, it's not going to be a matter hard any time at all. People are going to start turning evidence, you know, leading mm-hmm. out. You know, always happens, always. You know, because then they start realizing what reality is all about. It's easy to romanticize revolution. It's a whole different ballgame when you're going to really try to do it. Crossing the line for domestic terrorism is not easy at all. Yeah, yeah. as you've testified, you couldn't do it yourself. I couldn't do it. I I, I closer than almost anybody. Yeah, you went way further than most people will ever do. And um, I'm fortunate because, you know, I had a a core core in me that, that was against all this kind of stuff. You know, my mother didn't raise me to be a fool kind of thing. But society doesn't realize that people don't get into the movement in order to cause problems or to destroy buildings or kill people. They get into it because they think it will solve some aspect of their life that they're not happy with, Mm -hmm. you know, their own problems. So they get into some sort of a community like we did, thinking that that community is going to help take care of them. then they realize eventually they're in over their heads, just like most of us realize yeah. we're in over our heads, you know. And what do you do? Elson had a saying, he's he said a lot, and it was there's no easy way to get off the Bronx bull once you're on it. Mm-hmm. That's certainly said. true. Yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. You better hang I, on for dear life, man. <laughs> Ride this thing to the bitter end. There were times I think that Ellison hoped. Or, or wish that we had taken a different road, but mm. he didn't know how to get off that road and get back to how we were. You know, we had gone too far. And for most people that get mixed up in right-wing groups and extremism especially, what am I going to do? If I leave the group, you know, am I leaving God? Am I betraying somebody by betraying myself can i ever live with myself you know you you have to battle all of those questions all the doubts yeah yeah, if you can't come to an answer that you can live with then you're stuck you're going to stay in that group Mm. and And that's the cult dynamics again is it and if you stay in the group i used to tell when i used to talk to a lot of people in the right wing i'd say if, if you stay in the group you stay in the movement one of two things are going to happen. You're either going to die in some sort of a shootout or something, or you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. You're going to go to prison. And it's, mm-hmm. there's no other option, you know, because if, if you ever want to get out, as was seen with the order, especially members who tried to get out were killed. Yeah. Yeah. Serious yeah. business. Yeah. yeah. You know, happens with bikers. It happens with, Urban games, yeah. you know, you get out, you put your life on the line. Yeah, you don't and, quit the Hells Angels. You don't just walk away, you know. Yeah. Say, so what's been fun? Talk See to you all later. Not that easy. Work. 
Yeah. yeah. So that leaves you in a corner. Right. You know, what am I going to do? I can't. I, I can't. Trapped. Leave. Yeah, you're trapped. Yeah. You know? So that's and an so interesting that, perspective. So how, how do you, let's say you have someone, a family member, relative, loved one, someone like that who does get involved in the far right, you know, militia movement or serious conspiracy theory stuff. Is there any tips you can give us that would help us to get them out? How do you reach that person or can you reach that person? You can reach them if you can talk to them one-on-one. Of course, you know, right. if, if they're still with their group or get their buddies around, that makes it really difficult. Sure. But if you can get a one-on-one, here's what I've done in the past. Is what, what gets you into the movement typically is a recruiter. Recruiter says, you know, what's going on in your life? The recruiter doesn't care what's going mm-hmm. on. That's just a lead-in question. Uh, that's the hook. Well, yeah, it's the hook. Well, my, I'm having trouble with my wife. I lost my job. I can't pay my bills. My house is getting foreclosed on. It doesn't matter what it is. But as the recruiter, I want to find out what your hot button is, what's mm-hmm. bothering you in life. Right. What's your vulnerability? Yeah. So, and once I understand that, then I can point you to whose fault it is because it's not your fault. Oh, no. You're the victim. <laughs> You're right? the victim here, man. You lost your job. Oh, yeah. I mean, the government is bringing in, you know, shipping jobs overseas to Asia. Yeah, all the immigrants or whatever. Yeah. It could be anything. In, you know, urban renewal. You got to, you know, the you got to let blacks have a chance at the jobs, even if they're less qualified than the, than the whites are. So whatever. anything. Yeah. You know, you just go with that and they go, oh, yeah. Yeah. No wonder life isn't uh, treating me good. It's their fault. It's their fault. And you keep reinforcing that to them. So now you turn it around. The guy is no longer happy with the group he wants out. So you do the same thing. I talk to you individually. So you got involved with the group because you had a problem in your life. I'm assuming, yeah, yeah, what was it? And he'll, he'll tell them. So you got involved with the group to help you with such and such a problem. Did it help? No, didn't help. <laughs> right. Are you happier now? No, I'm scared for my life. Yeah, way worse off. (laughs) Way worse off. So what are we going to do? How can we get you out of this? Do you have anywhere to go? Do you have support of your family? Is there friends that you can go to with you by yourself? With your, you know, if you got a family, will your family leave with you? You know, so you got to find out those kinds of questions. And let's say the guy is able to get out, you know, and go somewhere. He says, "Oh, but I'm, I'm scared for my life." But I just tell him, "You're scared for nothing. Believe me." The chances that somebody's going to come after you, especially if you leave the area, mm-hmm. is so slim, it's never going to happen. And I'll use I'll use myself as an example. Look, I ended up leaving the group. I left the movement. I had to testify in a, in a trial against uh, the right-wing leaders on the sedition trial of 88. My life is never in danger. Mm-hmm. They haven't come after you yet. Yeah, they've never they made a move on you yet. Yeah. You know, all of that is to make you afraid and it's it works yeah it's a classic cult tactic isn't it the fear of leaving if you leave the group then there will be consequences whatever that might be whether it's eternal damnation or yeah someone's going to come after you you know there's the fear of being shunned or whatever it is somebody has planted those seeds in your mind and to you that's reality yeah so you got to tear that reality down and you say look nobody came after me nobody's come after it after any of my friends, other people who have left. And, you know, when I first came out, there was only four or five of us in the country. 
who had left the right wing movement. Mm -hmm. Nobody of those four or five was ever threatened. Right now, there's hundreds, if not thousands, of people have left groups, and I would dare say probably none of them ever got killed. Mm -hmm. You know that, that left. It's just the groups have got their own issues, their own problems to deal with. As long as you're not staying in that area where they have still have contact with you, you know, you're pretty much clean. Yeah, you don't want to stay in that area. Yeah. Well, I've got one more question for you. I, now, this is kind of a different subject, but I did an episode a while ago talking about when it was the Roe versus Wade, the leak that came out on the Supreme yeah. Court. So this is the whole thing about I, I thought about what would life be like in a theocratic kingdom? And I went through and talked about different historical examples, you know, Calvin's Geneva, Cromwell's England, and so forth. Now, I ended that episode by quoting your Facebook page, quite a lengthy quote, where you talked about if they overturn Roe versus Wade, which is going to happen, it looks like, yeah, that's just the slippery slope. That's the first stepping stone to taking away a number of rights uh, of people, not just in America, but it may be a a model for what happens in other countries as well. What's your concern with that uh, in terms of what you see happening with the Supreme Court and Roe versus Wade? Well, my concern, of course, with uh, Christian nationalism is, is the yeah. whole fuel of this thing. People don't understand the danger of Christian nationalism. It sounds like a good idea if you're a Christian. Sure. If you're a white person, it sounds like a good idea. Even better. Now, if you're a white Christian, it really sounds like yeah, a great it's going to tick all the boxes. Yeah, let's just get rid of all, you know, abortion. Let's get rid of all the things that yeah, God same-sex marriage. Yeah, same-sex marriage, everything that God would judge America for, because we want God to bless America yeah. like He used to. It all right? sounds so good. Yeah, so good. But here's what people don't realize: it starts with uh, RV weight. They you know, you're going to have what they're talking about now, the gun expansion, more uh, Second Amendment right kind of stuff. Now, as a matter of disclo disclosure, I'm for guns. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I personally think the Gun Control Act of 68-69 was an unconstitutional law to begin with, and that people have a right to guns. Before 1968, you could get out of prison and go buy a gun legally the next mm -hmm. day. Yeah, right. walk out of your prison cell and go to the yeah. gun store. <laughs> oh my God, nobody questions. No problem. Right. So I'm I'm for guns. Primarily, I'm for guns because if if everybody in this country owns a ton of guns, well, there's not a nation in this on this earth that will do a ground assault in the United States because mm -hmm. everybody perceives that every household has. 417 guns or whatever. They have a few, yeah. It's that's more like an arsenal. <laughs> you know, but one of the next things that would happen uh, after the guns, that one of the, well, what I think is going to happen next would be prayer going back into school. Mm. Those were the two hot buttons in uh, in the 70s. In the 60s, you got the gun control, control act. Though, if they do away with that, to where everybody can have a gun, even felons, then... Uh, you know, the Supreme Court would be, and the right wing is going to be happy with that. The the nationalists are going to be happy with that. If you do away with abortion, do away with, or you give prayer back in the school, Christians are going to love that. The Christian base, of course, is the base of the Republican mm -hmm. Party. 
the religious right fuels the political right. Without Absolutely. the religious right, the political right is going to collapse and fall. So you got to make the the white evangelicals happy. So then prayer comes back in the school. So the next issue is going to be gay rights. You mm -hmm. take away gay rights. So you, now you make uh, gay marriages illegal again. You bring back the sodomy laws and that kind of stuff. So you, you start getting rid of civil rights one by one. But what the, what the movement does not understand, has never understood, is for the settled ground that the, that the Christian right wants is to go back to 1950s. Mm -hmm. You know, where the dad earned the living, mom stayed at yeah. home. Raised Leave it to Beaver. Leave it to Beaver. Father knows that best. Was, yes, that yeah. Right? That's, to them, that was heaven. That's the heaven they understood. Right. That was the golden age. We're going to make America great again. Yeah. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> By going back to 1950. The right. problem with 1950, women had no rights. Yeah. You couldn't get a credit card in 1950. Yeah, well, segregation. Uh, yeah, as, exactly. as on the books as law. Yeah. 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 If you okay. were African-American in the 50s, you, you were not happy in the yeah. South for sure or anywhere else for that matter. You were, you were hung. Yeah, you, know, you were literally, the, yeah. Lynched. Yeah, the South, you, you could, there were still lynchings in the 60s in yeah. the South. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, you're doing what it was taught. And if you even, for a lot of them that want to, me, want to go back to 1776, who had rights in 1776? Exactly. White men. That was it. Yeah, we had slaves then. Yeah. That's what they, in their minds, they have romanticized the 1950s. They romanticized 1776. They don't understand the struggles that the founding fathers went through, the doubts. Mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we honestly form this country to reach some ideal of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everybody? How is that even possible? And what the right wants to do is do away with that whole conflict that the founding fathers were going through and just go back to the fact that white men had control, nobody else did, because mm -hmm. they're afraid. They're afraid that the white race is going to be done away with and white men are no longer going to have control. No. That's the fear in the movement. It comes around full circle because you had this kid, you know, again, as we're doing this recording, wasn't that long ago, up in Buffalo, New York. He's an 18-year-old kid. He gets into this conspiracy theory, the Great Replacement Theory, which has roots in your CSA stuff and all that going way back. Sure. And he feels like he's got to act out. He posts a 180-page manifesto on 4chan. He gets a bunch of guns and he drives, what, two hours or whatever he did to Buffalo and kills a bunch of African-Americans because he's heard all this stuff from the likes of Tucker Carlson and people like him. And that's, you know, where you cross the line. Never stops to think, how will this act change what's going on in this country? Yeah. How's it going to stop them from replacing us, quote unquote? Yeah. But yeah, the, the guys in Charlottesville, you know, just a number of years ago, they were chanting, Jews will not replace us. You will not yeah. replace us. So again, you've got that thread running through all this stuff, don't you? I can remember at CSA, how we would talk about what would ever happen if we had a black president in this country. And of course, the fear was that black president would bring forth some sort of a martial law mm -hmm. and start putting whites in prisons or 
concentration camps. Yep. And uh, due to them, what had been done to the right. black. Flip the and tables his, and. Yeah, uh, the table uh, that was the biggest fear, right? which, of course, would never happen. Obama had no thinking in those terms, right? Yeah. So it was interesting. After, of course, you know, CSA was a Republican Party people, you know. I was raised Democrat before I moved up there, and I was still Democrat before I moved up there. I wasn't a Republican until Reagan. Mm -hmm. I voted. First time I could vote, I voted for Jimmy Carter. Oh, yeah. He was an evangelical. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, of course, you know, a lot of stuff happened in the country, and I ended up voting for Reagan. Voted Republican after that. I was still voting Republican when I got out of prison. and still, You know, I got my voting rights back. Still voting Republican. When John McCain ran, I was going to vote for John McCain, especially the early talk was he was going to have Joe Lieberman as his VP. I love yeah. Joe Lieberman. Yeah. I like I really, I really liked uh, uh, McCain. So uh, to me, that was a, was a win win. Yeah. Then along came Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin. And I said, there ain't a way in the world. <laughs> no <laughs> chance. <laughs> God, yeah. could you imagine something happened to McCain and she gets beat? My prison? God. That's oh, horrific. It was yeah, I can't even so, imagine that. So then I heard uh, Obama talk. And I had never even considered voting for Obama, but I heard him talking. He said something to the effect of, you know, as president, I would try my best to open up a dialogue and talk to terrorists to see how we can come to some sort of a compromise or something. I want to understand their point mm -hmm. of view. That immediately impressed me because that was, I felt like that was what Danny Colson was saying to me during the siege of CSA is we're not here to hurt you. I, we want to understand you. And one thing yeah. he said to me was, you'd be surprised at how much of similar ideology that most of the people in the FBI have with y'all, you know. Mm. So that, but when Obama said that, that struck me. So I decided to look at Obama. To me, Obama was a good Christian man. He was a great family man. Loved his wife, loved his daughters. You know, I, there was nothing to me wrong with this guy. Mm -hmm. uh, Other than the color of his skin. Other than the color of his skin. I didn't have a problem by yep, that point. Exactly. So I, for the first time since Jimmy Carter, I voted Democrat. Wow. You know, you know because of him. And I can't uh, honestly imagine ever voting Republican again. Oh, man. You know, after of, Trump? Well, yeah, after after Trump. But it, here's, here's what the problem is in America today, Clint. We have Obama for two terms. Now, the pendulum always swings to the opposite yes, side. Yes, it does. So, you know, Trump, uh, Trump was the exact opposite of Obama mm -hmm. in every possible way. Yeah, and he hated Obama, too. Oh, he just hated To, to top it off. Yeah, you know, he was always talking about that, you know, Obama was born in, a, in Kenya and yeah, all that. Birtherism, yeah. Birtherism. So it was natural that we'd have to bring in somebody that was the total opposite to Obama when he left. And then, of course, here comes uh, COVID. And so for almost two years, people are stuck in their homes. Isolation. We, I used to believe isolation was the number one good thing about the farm, you know, Arkansas. We were separate from society. I didn't realize that it was all over with. Isolation was the number one problem. Mm. Because we don't, we didn't associate with anybody. We didn't have a balance. We didn't, of course, again, there's no yeah. internet. There's no way to 
you know, it's just us. The only people yeah. we ever talked to were eventually were other groups like us. Right. You're in an echo chamber, literally. Right. So here's been not even a year since we started coming out of COVID and we're having all kinds of issues. I don't believe we will see the full effects of what it's the psyche of what it's done to people uh, during COVID, at least for another 10 years. You know, mm -hmm. to me, it's inevitable we're going to see more mass shootings because for a year, year and a half, up to two years, people like we what we've seen so far have been stuck searching the web, surfing the web, and all they listen to is QAnon, mm -hmm. Newsmax. Alex you know, Jones, yeah, Fox News. It's the propaganda. They're hearing the propaganda yeah, exactly. over and over and over again. It's the cult mentality. Mm -hmm. you know, and we, we're we not even touching the surface yet of what that can do to people. What that is That's doing true. to people. What is doing, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's absolutely true. There's a lot to be concerned about. But I'm glad there's people like you out there who are speaking the truth to this stuff. Um, I have one last question now. I keep saying I have one last question, but where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you on social media? What's the best place? I mentioned your Facebook page. Is that the Facebook. best place to find you? So right now, it's the only place. Now, I'm, I'm making plans to start doing podcasts myself. Oh, right. Yeah, to try to reach out to people in the movement. Right. Because uh, I've got a perspective most of There are a lot of people who come out of the movement, but, you know, I'm the old man of the everybody's come out. So I've got a more historical aspect uh, reference, you know, than some of the others do. And I've been out longer than probably anybody else has mm -hmm. still living today. So yeah, I, I finally got me a new computer. I've, I've got me a microphone and headphones. Hey, I've, there. I've been reading up on how to do everything for three or four years now. Time to pull the you, trigger on this thing. Well, I'm hoping to have everything done uh, by the 1st of July where I start doing my own, you know, put out my first uh, podcast. Very good. Well, if I can help you in any way, Carrie, reach out to me. I would love to help you start your podcast. Oh, you. So, yeah, I, I went through a long journey of basically just researching myself and figuring out how to do it. So, yeah, I can share with you anything that might help you. So people can find you on your Facebook page. I think it's called Noble Insights. Isn't that what your Facebook page is? Yeah. You're not yes. on Twitter or anything else at that at this well, point. I tried Twitter and my <laughs> God, that was, didn't get it. <laughs> I did not get it. Yeah. Okay. And Facebook is the protocol then for people. Well, I'll put the link in the show notes and uh, people can find you on your Facebook page. And I know you post up a lot of stuff, so it's quite interesting to read. So thank you so much, Carrie. It's been great, you know, meeting you, chatting with you, getting to know you a little bit. I'm sure we'll stay in touch. And like I said, if you need any help on your podcast, let me know and I'll be happy to help you. Thanks, Pedro. Speak your brain.